0: robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and scatters. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was, again, a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, "These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. The Jews gathered, verse 24, and said to him, "How long you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly." Jesus answered them, "I told you, and you do not believe." No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Last Sunday after the uh, morning service, not relevant to. The message during the service, our minister, David Robertson, asked me a question about John Milton. I think he said a few weeks ago that he had bought a new copy of Paradise Lost. And thinking about this passage this morning, it uh, triggered memories of being in secondary school preparing for what we old people used to call the hires. And reading the poetry of John Milton, actually the cynical side of me wondered if it's still possible to teach the poetry of John Milton in school or in university without giving one of those trigger warnings to students that they may be upset, especially if they belong to the secular society. Because in order to understand this poetry, you're going to need to understand a ton of the message of the Bible. Because Milton's poetry, this isn't a lecture on Milton, but Milton's poetry, just in case you didn't know, is saturated with Bible references. And one of his most purple passages uh, is intensely relevant to this passage of Scripture. It's in his poem, *Lycidas*, which is an elegy for a young man who was going into the ministry who was drowned in the Irish Sea. And Milton sees a number of people coming forward to speak. The fourth of them is Simon Peter. And Simon Peter regrets the death of this young man who had such promise for gospel ministry in the light of the false shepherds that people had in Milton's time, 1637, those of you who are Scottish nationalists remember 1638 and the national covenant. These were hard days for gospel ministers. And this is how Milton writes Last came and last did go the pilot of the Galilean lake. Two massy keys he bore. Of metals twain, the golden opes, the iron shuts amain. He shook his mitred locks and stern bespake, How well could I have spared for thee, young swain, enough of such as for their belly's sake creep and intrude and climb into the fold, of others' care they little reckoning make, then how to scramble at the shearer's feast and shove away the worthy, bidden guest. Blind mouths, they scarce themselves know how to hold a sheep hook or have learned aught else the least that to the faithful herdman's art belongs. What do they care? What need they? They have success, and when they choose their lean and flashy songs, Great on their scrannled pipes of wretched straw, the hungry sheep look up and are not fed. And there's a kind of controlled rage here in Milton that will remind some of you of Dylan, not the man who won the prize last year, but Dylan Thomas do not go gently. He rages about his fathers just slipping into death. And Milton rages because here are men whose task is to feed the sheep, and they are putting the food into their own mouths, and the food they are putting into their mouths is the sheep. And this is exactly what Jesus says about those who had gone before him that the sheep did not listen to or follow. These were blind mouths. These were wolves who, wearing sheep's clothing, devoured the flock. And that's all the There's something electric about what Jesus is saying here that we can miss because this is the lovely picture of the good shepherd, We only understand what Jesus is saying here about the good shepherd when we understand that he is distinguishing himself uniquely from all these other shepherds. Every single one of them you have had telling you that they will guide you and lead you, he says, have been false shepherds, blind mouths, feeding themselves. And this is what enrages people in this chapter. You notice that last verse we read, they took up stones again to stone him. And so, if we are to understand what he means when he says he is the good shepherd, we, we need to understand the stark contrast between what a good shepherd looks like and what a false shepherd does. That's actually a great word to the 21st century church, incidentally. I used to think, as a young man, it's just the way it is. And now I think that there are people who are being paid to feed the people of God out of this book, but who hide this book from the people of God. It was exactly the situation Jesus was facing. They should have been opening up their Hebrew Bibles and saying, all of this points to Jesus. And instead, they were hiding the Bible, and they were seeking to destroy the good shepherd. So what does it mean against that background that Jesus is the, the good shepherd? In the second half of John chapter 10, there are actually two themes interweave. The first is the relationship between Jesus, the good shepherd, and his sheep. The other is the relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, and his Father. I doubt we'll get to that today. We may not get to it, but I want us to look again at what it means for Jesus to be the good shepherd. Some of the older folk in the congregation will remember from way back when, when Christians often used to speak about two dimensions of the work of the Lord Jesus— And they had had two little phrases they used. I wonder if you've heard them. They would speak about the finished work of Christ and about the ongoing work of Christ. And Jesus refers to himself as the Good Shepherd in both of these dimensions of his work, of his ministry. There There is a ministry that Jesus has finished and completed Remember John 19 is at verse 30. His last words in John's gospel on the cross are this cry that comes from him, finished, done, completed. So there is a work that Jesus has finished, but there is also a work that Jesus has not yet finished, a finished work and an ongoing work and it refers here, first of all, to his finished work. The good shepherd gives his life, he says, verse 10, lays down his life for the sheep. He gives his life in order to give life to the sheep. He gives his life in order to save the sheep. He dies on the cross in order to provide new life and forgiveness, abundant life, he calls it here. And this is the very heart of the New Testament. It's actually the very heart of the Bible, isn't it? On and on through the Bible, there is this idea that is worked out that if, if our sins are ever to be forgiven, if we, are, if we are ever to be brought into the presence of God, then somebody needs to deal with our guilt and our shame and our sin and our judgment. Remember how David cries out in Psalm 51. He, he says, "Oh God, f- find a sacrifice for my blood guilt. And that is, that is, from his lips, the most daring prayer in the whole of the Old Testament, because there was no sacrifice provided for what he had done. And it's as though he's crying out to God to say, O oh God, find someone else who can take my place, who can be a sacrifice. Give us a sacrifice you haven't provided for us, for the the sins that I have committed, for which there was no sacrifice, no hope. Sins of the high hand against God. Suddenly, after hiding it all for months on end, the prophet came and, and his conscience was smitten, and he, he cries out in, in, a kind of, in a kind of hope that is on the verge of despair, oh God, is there some way? I, he didn't really know what he was asking for. We know what he was asking for. He was asking for the only way that God could possibly deal with this situation, and that is by sending his own son to take David's place, sending The shepherd to take the place of the sheep, sending Jesus to take my place so that I can sing in my place. Condemned, he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And you notice how Jesus spells this out. He he doesn't do it the way Paul does it with a kind of series of logical statements that work out from the fact that Jesus died on the cross. He, he, he pictures it in terms of what the shepherd does. And you notice the way he puts it. He says, this death I'm going to die is a substitutionary death. And he, he says it over and over again. It's my life for their life. It's my death so that they may not die. It's me as their substitute. And then he says, interestingly, it's also a voluntary death. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And actually, if you, if you hold that statement in mind and then run through some of these chapters in John's gospel right to the end, it's a very remarkable thing that actually this was the truth of the matter. Already, they've tried to kill him. In this chapter, they've got stones in their hands to kill him. They will plot. Judas will betray him. Eventually, Pontius Pilate will say, don't you realize I have the power to put you to death? And Jesus says, you have no power except the power that will be given you from above. And his very last words are not, they've done it, but I've done it. I have power, he says, to lay down my life, and when my work is finished, I have power to take it up again. So, This death is not only substitutionary and voluntary, it's also filled with victory. Uh, No one else in in history would, would ever dare to make this kind of claim. I have power to lay down my life. He's thinking about the cross. And then he says, I've got the authority to take my life back up again. He's thinking about his resurrection. I know we often think about that as something God the Father does or God the Spirit does, but everything God the Father does and God the Spirit does and God the Son also does. And he's speaking about the victory, just giving a little hint of the victory that will be his, that death will exercise all its dark power, but it will not be able to hold him down. And he will rise again. And then he says also there's a particularity about my death. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. That is to say, the sheep I know by name. I know my sheep by name like the good shepherd. And I die for them. Well that raises a very important question, doesn't it? How would I know that He died for me? And it's one thing, isn't it, to say Christ died for sinners. But lots of people say Christ died for sinners and, and they are incapable. They're, they are just incapable of saying, I know he died for me. They could never bring themselves to say in faith, like the Apostle Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. They could never fill their own name in there. So how do we know that we are his sheep? And that's the second aspect of Jesus' ministry that he describes here. The work that he has finished on the cross and in his resurrection in order to bring salvation to his sheep, but the ongoing work of the Lord Jesus in order to bring his sheep to that salvation. How does he do it? How would you know that Jesus died for you? I don't mean just know it as a kind of proposition that maybe you've heard all your life, Jesus died for us on the cross. But so that you would be able to say with great confidence, I know He died for me. Died He for me who caused His pain, for me who Him to death pursued. Amazing love. So, you never really say that until you're able to say, He died for me. Then you want to say, that is amazing love. How can it be? And he explains to us very simply, doesn't he? Uh, The first thing you know is that the shepherd who knows you by name calls you by name, and you hear his voice. Uh, We thought about that a little last week. And this is anywhere you go in the world, any language in the world, in the highest of civilizations, in The almost complete absence of civilization, and all through the last 2,000 years, if you could summon Christians all together and say, How did it happen to you? they would say, I heard him calling me. Different contexts through different instruments, in different languages, in different places, and at different times, and belonging to a thousand different churches and kinds of churches, and all able to say, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. And if you're a Christian believer, it doesn't matter where you go. In all the world, you meet someone else who is a Christian believer who has heard the voice of Jesus and you you recognize, as Jesus says here, that uh, he's called them too into this single flock of which he is the single shepherd. And you don't become a Christian otherwise. Because, because you see, when you believe something, it's it's not… You can't believe something just because you decide to believe something. That's not the way it works. That's not how it works psychologically. You come to believe something because that something persuades you of its own truth. And you don't come to believe in Jesus simply by saying, I think, you know, today it's Sunday, I think I'll believe in Jesus today. If anyone tells you that that's the way it works, just say, well, believe in Jesus today. Show me that you can do it just by deciding that you can do it. And of course, the problem is they're not even capable of deciding they can do it. Because until you hear the shepherd's voice yourself, you'll never be persuaded that he is able to save you and keep you. But when you hear his voice, ah, that's different. And this is what he says, and and there's something else you come to know. When he calls you by by name, you come to understand that he knows you by name. He knows you through and through. Now, this is actually quite a key thing in being a Christian. Many of us who are Christians speak about becoming a Christian as coming to know Christ, and that's true. But what's clear in this passage, it's clear if you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's clear in what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, that you can only come to know Him in a context in which you know He has come to know you. Remember what Jesus says, on the last day there will be many people who say, Lord, I knew you and I did all these things in your wonderful name, and He will say, I'm depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. So his sheep know that he knows them. Think for a minute about the reporter's questions. At least they used to be the reporter's questions. You know, who, why, what, where, and how. And think about your own life and relationship to the Lord Jesus. He knows who you are. He knows where you are. Even if you've been under this strange delusion you can hide from Him, He knows exactly where you are. And He knows what you are. Nobody else knows that. Your nearest and dearest don't know that. Your mother probably knew it best. But even she didn't know what you really are, who you really are, where you really are, and why you're like that. There are some of you, I'm sure, in a a congregation this size, there must be some people who think nobody understands why I am the way I am. Nobody knows my story but he knows your story. He knows not only what you are, but why you are what you are. And this is the one who's saying, I lay down my life for such sheep. I call them to faith. I know their names. I know who you are. And then here is this staggering thing he adds, knowing who we are, where we are, what we are, why we are what we are. Having died for us on the cross, he promises that he will keep us by his grace. Chapter 10, uh, in verses 28 and 29, he says, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. So that's not just, I give them eternal life so they are not perishing. That's, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. How can you be sure about that? Well, he goes on to explain, he doesn't want us to be in any doubt. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me, he was greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Think of it, held in the hand of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, no one can ever take you out of my hand. And then he says, plus, no one can ever take you out of my Father's hand. It's not that you are no longer perishing, it's that you'll never, ever, ever perish. And what Jesus is pledging himself to here is that he is as likely to die in heaven as lose any of these sheep that he calls by name for whom he dies, because he gives us eternal life. You know that hymn of Top Lady? My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Because my name is inscribed in marks of indelible grace. Those of you who are musicians, that's where indelible grace got indelible grace from. Top ladies, hymn. Yes, he sings, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, and they surely are more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits. In heaven. Are you a new Christian and wondering how long it's going to last? Or a frail Christian and wonder if you keep going? You'll not find any reassurance in here. And so look to his nail pierced hands that wrap themselves around you, and then to the mighty hands of his. Father, His outstretched arms embracing you. And know that if you've heard His voice and have trusted Him and are following Him, you will never ever perish. Nothing will ever be able to withstand the Father's devotion to you. Some of you may know the song that's become very popular among American Reformed Christians, I'm not sure it has as yet in the United Kingdom. It's an old hymn by Ada Habershon, whom some of you will know because she wrote the chorus, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? So, if you're a Johnny Cash fan, you should know about Ada Habershon. Listen to this. When I fear my faith, this is not Milton, this is Habershon, You don't need to know Latin, Greek, classics, or very much of the Bible to understand. Dear Ada, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. And if you're one of His sheep, He does love you so. He loves you enough to have died for you, and so He'll never let go. That's what brings faith to birth in us, isn't it? It's knowing what he's like and who he is and being embraced by him and embracing him. Why don't we all do that? Pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given such a Saviour to us as our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the simplicity with which he spoke. Thank you for the courage with which he spoke against those false shepherds of his time and for the assurance with which he was able to point men and women and young people to himself and say, come to me because I am the good shepherd. And for the way he proved himself to be the good shepherd by laying down his life for the sheep and for how he proved that he could save us by taking up his life again and rising to be our risen Savior and Lord and Friend and, yes, Shepherd too. Oh, awaken faith within us, we pray, if it has never been awakened before. Strengthen faith in us that we may grasp him who grasps us. And give to us all, we pray, for we are all frail and in need, no matter what we appear to one another. Oh, we pray that since You have given us, Heavenly Father, to Your Son as His sheep, and since He has died for us, that we will have a deep assurance that nothing will ever be able to separate us from Your love in Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name.